Good morning, church. Uh, it is so good to be back with you again, uh, although, again, I, I wish a speedy recovery to Tommy, but because he's out, I get to preach again, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and I get to conclude the book of Esther. Uh, I have had so much fun studying this book, and I hope you've taken great encouragement uh, from seeing God's hand of providence over the pages of history and the everyday details of our lives. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to get up, grab one from the back of the cart. You're going to want one today, like every Sunday, but especially today because we are covering quite uh, a large chunk of, of text. Um, as you do that, as you turn there, let me remind you of where we left off um, with this conclusion of this dramatic narrative. So this is your last week on the book of Esther, we saw quite a bit of drama in the courts of King Ahasuerus. After days of feasting with his queen and his right-hand man, Haman the Agagite, it was revealed to the king by, the, by Queen Esther that an edict had been made sentencing Esther along with Mordecai, a, a man the king just honored, and all the Jewish people that they would be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Who could do such a thing, thought the king. Well, Esther dramatically reveals that it was none other than the foe, the enemy, this wicked Haman, the man they had been feasting alongside. We had seen Haman's pride and hatred for Mordecai compel him in this narrative to trick the easily manipulated king into making this genocidal edict uh, to be carried out at a time determined by the role of dice. In his fury, the king orders Haman to be hanged, ironically on the very gallows that Haman had planned for Mordecai just a few days before. Now, while the great foe and enemy Haman was defeated and Mordecai's life had been spared, the genocidal edict was still in effect, an edict that was said to be irrevocable. Therefore, we are still left wondering Will Esther be able to save her people? Will the king be able to change the law in time? Will Haman have the last laugh? Let's find out together. If you would turn uh, Esther chapter 8, and we'll read 8 all the way to the end of the book. Now, this is a very long passage. Uh, I think it's a record, Keston record uh, for longest passage read. So settle in, get comfy, uh, and ask the Lord to give you eyes of faith as we read His inspired word this conclusion to the book of Esther. Church, this is what God's word says. <clears throat> On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. 
For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to the Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses and were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many for the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples, all the officials of the provinces, and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful." The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphan, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adelia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. 
The very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to the day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a, glad, as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hazarus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves at their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. 
King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of, his, of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, your holy word, and the deliverance that you have brought to your covenant people. Father, would you help us today to understand your word rightly and faithfully apply it to our lives. Let us receive your word with gladness knowing that we are a people that are blessed to hear it. And all God's people said, amen. Now, I don't think it would take me long to convince you that Americans love to eat. And we especially love to celebrate with eating. Most of our major holidays, uh, we've made sure include food. Uh, Thanksgiving dinner, maybe it's probably the, the pinnacle, but then there's also Christmas dinner, Easter brunch, Fourth of July barbecue. Oh, it's your birthday? Let's have some cake. Uh, and let's go out to dinner. I'm sure uh, many of you have been to weddings uh, that are followed by very large dinners of feasting with family and friends. In American culture and other cultures around the world, celebrating is inextricably linked to feasting. But on the flip side, we can often recognize that a lack of feasting is often a sign of mourning or sorrow often will connect sadness with a lack of appetite, or some people will voluntarily go on hunger strikes, foregoing food as a sign of their opposition to perceived injustice. Uh, Our lives are full of both fasting and feasting. Now, if you've been with us through the book of Esther, you've probably recognized very similar themes. This book is full of fasting and feasting. Some commentators actually believe the whole book itself is actually structured around two, uh, three sets of feasts. In chapter 1, there was the feast of the king and queen, and then last week we saw Esther prepare two feasts, and today we see the book end with a set of feasts in response to God's deliverance. So what do we do with all that, that, those themes? Well, my prayer today as we conclude this book, as we see God turn His people's fasting into feasting, that we would be a people that are marked by faith and by hope as we fast and as we feast, waiting with expectation for our final deliverance, waiting for a day when we will weep and we will fast no more in the presence of our King. If you're taking notes, uh, I've broken down these chapters into three sections, each of which will end with a feast. Uh, So point one, if you're taking notes, God makes a way in chapter eight. God makes a way. Number two, God delivers a judgment in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, God provides a feast. Church, we have a lot of ground to cover and very little time to do so. So we're going to dive right in. Chapter 8, and God makes a way. Last week, Esther finally has unveiled her ethnicity and the wicked plot of Haman to the king. And in response, the king puts an end to Haman. But additionally, you'll see right here at the beginning of chapter 8, that the king further humiliates Haman, even in death, 
as the king hands over Haman's house to Mordecai. And not only that, but he takes the signet ring off of dead Haman and he gives it to Mordecai as well, giving him the power to speak on behalf of the king. It's incredible, right? In a few short days, Mordecai and Haman have completely switched places, and this theme of reversals is going to be prominent in these chapters. Now, while all this is great news for Mordecai, Haman's edict is still in place, and so we are left wondering, will Esther and Mordecai be able to save the Jews? Will God be able to make a way for them to be saved? Well, we see God begin to make a way, starting in verse 3, as we see something in Esther that we haven't seen her do before. Instead of using her kind of cool, calm, composed, and cunning way to turn the king's heart in her favor, this time, what does she do? She falls at the king's feet and weeps, makes a passionate plea with him, not for her own life, as Haman had pled before Esther last week, but for the life of her people. Look at verse 5. And she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther, at this point, I think she's pulling out all the stops to change the king's mind. Kind of like when I say no to my daughter, and then she uses the puppy dog, you know, little puppy dog eyes at me and does one of these. It's like, ooh, you're pulling on my heartstrings, girl. You're doing it. Uh, it's, it's almost like Esther, right? She's saying, King, you know, if you really love me, if you really like to have me around, if you really want me to be happy, will you, won't you grant my request? Now, the king's response in verse 7 seems to imply uh, that he thought killing Haman and giving the house and the ring to Mordecai was enough. But for Esther, her salvation wasn't enough if it didn't also include the salvation of her people. Again, this is, I think, showing the growth in her character, that she is unlike the king uh, and is not just acting in her own self-interest. The king, in response to this passionate plea, sticks to the only principled bone, I think, in his body, and he does not revoke the edict, for an edict with the king's ring cannot be revoked. But instead, what does he say? He tells Esther and Mordecai that they can write their own edict concerning the Jews, and they can seal it with his ring. So he won't revoke the edict, but he is happy to approve two contradictory contradictory laws and to see which one wins out. King has no concern for the constitutional crisis that he has just uh, approved. He has no care about what might happen in his kingdom. He's just happy to see, yeah, we'll see which one wins out when the time comes. And as we see, it takes Mordecai no time to gather the king's scribes and craft an edict that would counter Haman's, knowing that his time was running short, and it would take some time for the news to travel across all those 127 provinces in the Persian Empire. You know, they didn't have the speedy postal delivery service that we have to get the word out. And we see these words of the edict in chapter 8, verse 11, and you'll notice that it deliberately echoes Haman's edict, but in favor of the Jews. Look at verse 11. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. 
on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And as we remember, that is the very same day that Haman's law would also go into effect. So essentially, Mordecai's edict is giving the Jews the right to defend themselves against those who sought to destroy them and also be able to take their stuff, which we'll come back to later, which is important. And they'll be able to do this with the full backing of the Persian Empire. I mean, what an incredible turn of events. And I think further in, in chapter 8, I, I think the author is intentionally drawing our attention to the great reversals for God's people. Just look, for example, if you remember back when Haman's edict was read in chapter 4, what did Mordecai do? He tore his clothes dressed himself in sackcloth and ashes, and cried out in the midst of the city. But here, what do, we see him in, uh, what do we see Mordecai do? He's dressed in what? Royal robes, blue and white, with a golden crown on his head, shouting with joy in the city. Chapter 4, the city was stirred up into confusion, and the Jewish people were mourning and fasting and weeping and lamenting at the news of Haman's edict. But now, in chapter 8, verse 16, we see the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Chapter 4, there was fasting. And now everywhere that the news has reached, there was celebratory feasting. God had made a way for them to be saved. And the people respond to this news of their coming deliverance with joy and feasting. But maybe the most amazing reversal is that of the response of the non-Jewish people. Maybe you caught it at the end of chapter 8. Verse 18, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, again, oh, I was going to say this. Esther, again, you think about this. Esther, at the beginning of the narrative, she has concealed her identity, right? Concealed her ethnicity for fear of being killed. But now... As she just reveals her identity, the people of the kingdom are now wanting to identify as Jews for fear that they may be killed. Quite the reversal. Now, I don't know if the people that were here truly converted or they truly feared God or they were just fearing for their lives, but it is important to recognize that they had a choice to choose the side of Haman, the, the enemies, or the side of the Jews. And they knew they had to choose, and they chose the side with the Jews. And I think this foreshadows a day, and even in our day, that we have a choice to choose. Are we going to side with Yahweh or are we going to side with his enemies? And there's going to be a, a day when the nations will be gathered under the protection of Yahweh being drawn to his king. It's incredible. In a few short days, the entire outlook for the Jews has changed, for God has made a way and has turned their fasting into feasting at this announcement of their coming deliverance. Just to pause here, uh, let's think of just one clear, I think, brief application that we ought to take to heart in this chapter. And that is, when our circumstances make it feel that God's promises can't possibly come to pass for us, we must continue to trust that our God can make a way. Too often, we see God and judge God through our circumstances. We see Him say, our circumstances are like this. God, you must be like this. Instead, it ought to be flipped. We ought to say, God, this is who you are. Therefore, as I endure these circumstances, I trust 
that you can make a way, even if it doesn't feel like you can. I think God often will use uncomfortable circumstances to remind us that we're not in control, so that when He shows Himself faithful again, we can give Him praise and glory that He deserves. Just as we saw a baptism this morning and we cheered and clapped, it wasn't because of, of Chandler, but it was because of what God had done in Chandler's life. Uh, and we can rejoice when we see God at work, trusting that even when circumstances feel difficult, even when uh, we don't see how God can make a way, we can trust that His promises are sure for us. Uh, we don't have record that Mordecai and Esther praised God for their deliverance. Uh, they may have, uh, but we know that as a church, we ought to, when we see God at work, we ought to celebrate, we ought to praise the Lord when we see Him fulfill those things so we can be encouraged to look to Him in any circumstance. So friends, we have seen God make a way, and the Jews' fasting has turned into feasting at the announcement of this edict. Yet the day when the dueling edicts are to be implemented has not yet come. And you can just imagine the tension in the country um, when these two edicts are coming to a head, kind of thinking like the tension of how the allies must have felt preparing to meet their enemies on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, just not knowing what the outcome might be. Well, the author, thankfully, doesn't make us wait too long to find out what happens on that day, which brings us to our second point. God delivers a judgment. God delivers a judgment. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Further down, and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. The deliverance that the Jews anticipated has now been realized. The enemies of the Jews thought this would be the day of victory for them, but instead the reverse occurred. And there was no doubt who had won the victory, for even the Persian officials helped the Jews out of fear of Mordecai, gaining, who gained so much power. And this news of this decisive victory reaches the ears of the king, and he seems a little bit flabbergasted uh, that 500 were killed just in Susa, leaving him wondering how much had been done in all the other provinces of my kingdom, how much damage has really been done. Yet the king uh, still feels that he's still not fulfilled his gift to Esther, and so he asks Esther again for her request, and her request, as you saw, is a little surprising. She asks that the Jews be able to continue the fight against their enemies one more day in the city of Susa, and also requests that the ten sons of Haman, who are already killed, to be hanged just as their father was. The king complies with his queen's request, and the Jews in Susa kill another 300 of their enemies who sought to do them harm. We'll come back to that later, but as we see the end of this chapter, uh, there is, it gives way to more feasting and gladness. Mordecai, in the seat of his power, what does he do? He establishes an annual feast, the Feast of Purim, 
a day to remember when the Jews got relief from their enemies, the day when their sorrow was turned to gladness, their mourning into a holiday. And they call it Purim after the term Pur, which we saw means to cast lots for. If you remember, Haman rolled dice to determine what day the end of the Jews would be. Uh, and what so happens is that God used that roll of the dice to determine the day that he would deliver victory for the Jews. For God is sovereign even over the roll of dice. Now, after reading that chapter, I would venture to guess that some of you have some questions uh, considering the amount of bloodshed in this chapter, uh, maybe asking, was Mordecai right in ordering this edict? Was Esther a little excessive with her request for one more day of conflict? Were the Jews righteous in their destruction of their enemies, considering we don't have a direct command from, from God in this book to warrant, maybe, the annihilation of their enemies? Well, we don't have explicit command from God in this book, I think the author gives us some clues that we are meant for us to interpret that both Esther and Mordecai, though surely not blameless and often even compromise God's law in this book, but in this case, I believe they were acting on behalf of God and fulfilling a long-awaited judgment that had been pronounced on their enemies of God's people long ago. Just as a side note, it's really important. Anytime you read historical narrative in the Old Testament, it's always read with an understood of they understand what has been written before. Both so in, in the Torah, you're reading this, you're not just reading this in an isolated manner, but the Jews would know what had been written before, and so they're interpreting this. And so let me show you these clues. First, I think we get a clue from Haman's ten sons being listed by name and Esther's request to have them hang like their father. Why would, why would she do this? Why are these ten guys listed? Well, we need to remember that Haman's edict against the Jews was not just a personal vendetta, a personal animosity towards Mordecai, but actually an expression of an age-old battle between Haman's ancestors, the Amalekites, and God's people. Just a little biblical context for you. All the way back in Exodus 17, as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, who did they meet? They met the Amalekites, and the Amalekites, unprovoked, attack God's people on their way to the promised land. The Lord responds to the Amalekites' uh, war against His people with this. He promised that He will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. The promise of God in Exodus 17. Fast forward in Israel's history to 1 Samuel 15. God instructs King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, including their king Agag who is the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Haman, and devote everything to destruction. What does Saul do? Well, the Scriptures tell us, 1 Samuel 15, Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. So with that context in mind, I think we are meant to see Esther's actions against the house of Haman as a fulfillment of what God asked Saul to do many years before. God's people had failed to obey God's voice, and they began to fall into idol worship, worship other gods. But now Esther has fulfilled the promise of God, and she left no doubt whether or not Haman's descendants would threaten God's people ever again by making a display of them for all to see. It may have taken a while, but God always delivers on His promises. 
even his promises to deliver judgment upon his enemies. Another clue uh, that Esther and the Jews acted properly in God's sight is, I think, the emphasis the author puts on the plunder. Did you notice, as I read this repeated phrase, they did not lay hands on the plunder, even though the edict said that they could do so? I think we are meant to conclude that what Saul failed to do when he destroyed the Amalekites, he took the best spoils for himself. Esther and the Jews did the exact opposite. Unlike Saul, the Jews chose not to profit off their enemies and to fulfill God's original command to Saul. I I do believe if the record showed that the Jews took the plunder and extended their actions beyond those who were attacking them, uh, I think we could conclude that this was not from the Lord. But instead, I think we see God use flawed people to fulfill a promise of judgment that He had made centuries before upon those who oppose His rule and plot to thwart God's irrevocable promises. Now, you may be wondering, well, what promises were Haman's descendants, these enemies of the Jews, what were they trying to thwart? Well, I think, again, we are meant to take our minds back all the way to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Ever since sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, the devil has tried to do what? To thwart God's promise. His promise to who? To Adam and Eve, to all humanity, that one day, one would come from the seed of the woman. One would come from the line of Abraham. And what would he do? He would crush the head of the serpent, the devil. If God did not give victory to the Jews, this promise would not come to pass. And we would all still be under ju- the judgment of God for, um, for our sin and with no hope. But because God delivered his holy judgment in the book of Esther, we who have sinned against a holy God, deserving of divine judgment, because of that, we have hope. Because remember, 400 years later, what happened? God sent his son to earth in the line of Abraham to live a perfect life, to die a death that we deserved for sinners, sinners like Esther and Mordecai, and sinners like you and me. And on a day 2,000 years ago, when the king of kings hung on a tree outside of Jerusalem, the devil thought he had finally won, but the reverse occurred. Jesus defeated death. He came out of the grave and dealt a crushing blow to the head of that ancient serpent. And now the risen Christ, what does he do? He offers salvation to all types of sinners, whether Jew or Gentile, men and women, young and old, rich or poor, to come and find salvation in Christ alone. Uh, As Chandler confessed today, all of us who trust in Christ have been buried with Christ in his death and raised to to new life, symbolizing that we are no longer under the holy judgment of God. Christ has satisfied that judgment with his life, and he gives us his eternal life. But friend, I would pause here. Just if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, if you're still trusting in your good works or your good family because of where you grew up or that you've been to church consistently in your life, those things won't save you. The Bible says that God's judgment remains on you. And one day, King Jesus will come back to deliver his final judgment on all who continue to oppose him. 
as our text said, there are only two sides. You cannot be agnostic on this. You either side with the Jews, you side with God's people in Christ, and their, our King, or we side with His enemies who want to destroy and take, um, take away the promises of God. That's the bad news. But guess what? There's good news, right? The good news of the gospel is that God made a way. He delivered judgment on Christ so that all who repent of their sins and believe in Christ's death, that it was sufficient for you, will be safe when that judgment day finally comes. And not only safe, but we will get invited to a feast, to a celebration, which brings us to our conclusion and our last point. God prepares a feast. You'll notice at the end of the book of Esther, Mordecai is at the right hand of the king. He's number two, just like Joseph before him. And his rule has brought what? It has brought peace and blessing, not only to the Jews, but to all in the kingdom. And if you remember at the beginning uh, of the sermon, I had said that each section would end with a feast. Now, you may be saying, hey, I don't see a feast at the end of chapter 10. Well, I think it doesn't end with a feast, but I think it anticipates a coming feast. The peace brought by Mordecai the Jew to the Persian kingdom foreshadows and anticipates the day when Jesus Christ, the king, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, will bring full and final peace to the world. And all who submit to his rule, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, will enjoy his peace and will be invited to a feast. And we see this invitation to this feast in Revelation 19 context of that, of that book, in Revelation 18, we see this big battle, the final Armageddon between the city of Babylon, those who represent all who oppose God and his king and King Jesus. And after his victory, after he crushes his enemies, what does he do? He provides a feast, a feast to end all feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all who take refuge in the Son, Jesus, will be invited to this feast, and we will enjoy his reign and his rule and his peace forever. For those who are in Christ, all our sorrows will one day be turned to joy. One day, all our fasting will turn to feasting. But friend, that day has, still, has, has not yet come. I wish it would come. Hopefully, today is the day that that day will come. But today we gather as God's people, not connected by ethnicity, but by his spirit. And our lives today are marked by fasting and feasting, for we live in the already not yet. You may have come in here today, and you may be full of, your life is marked by fasting or sorrow, or you have feel the, the weight of guilt uh, as you come into service today. Or maybe you are people who are filled with joy because you've seen the hand of God um, at work uh, in the world uh, as a Christian community, we have capacity for both. We both fast and feast. We feast, every one of us who trusts in Christ has a reason to feast because we can look back and we can see the deliverance from our sin as we look to the cross of Christ. We can remember that our guilt does not, we do not carry our guilt anymore, that we have been forgiven. We can come in with our burden lifted knowing that Christ has satisfied the judgment of God for us. And God has even given us a meal to the church to remember our deliverance, not Purim and not Passover, but the Lord's Supper, right? To remember and to celebrate our deliverance 
together. Yet even as we regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church, as we did last week, we are reminded at the Lord's table that our salvation is not yet fully realized. We still weep over our indwelling sin. We still weep over the corruption that we see in this world. And yet we are a people that don't grieve without hope. We have hope, for God has promised a day that will, that will provide a much better feast than we have at the Lord's Supper, but even a better feast because we will be truly in the presence of our King, and He will provide a feast of rich food full of marrow and well-aged wine. Therefore, let us be a people who always, when you come into service each and every Sunday, recognizing that there are people who come in who are in a state of fasting or a state of, of feasting, and that we would be a people who are ready by the way we sing, by the way we talk with one another, the way we encourage one another, to be able to say, friend, there is a day coming, that our, fe- our feasting will even be better than your feasting now, and there will be a day when your weeping will be no more. But today we can weep together, we can rejoice together, because we, we know that our God has made a way, that God has provided a deliverance for us. He has provided a judgment that he put on Christ for us. And there is a day coming when all of our sorrows will be to give way to joy and all of our fasting will give way to feasting. Church, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this book of Esther for your holy and inspired word that reminds us that you are the sovereign God over all the pages of history and you have woven such a beautiful story of deliverance um, that culminates in your son, Jesus Christ, who has died for us that we might live and be brought into your family. We who are your enemies have now been made your friends and are invited to your table. Lord, as we await all your promises for us in Christ, will you help us to be people who weep with those who weep and lift up those who are discouraged, that we'd be able to have capacity for both, both weeping and rejoicing as we look forward to the day when all of our fasting will turn to feasting. And even as we respond to your word with singing, would we remember that the voices that ring out in joy are all echoing the day that is to come when we are around your throne, rejoicing in the good King who has offered us a deliverance, has made a way, and prepares a table before us. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.